It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And I don't know about you, but with each week, as we've been looking at each saying of Jesus on the cross, I've just been falling more and more in love with Jesus. Each week, as we've been looking at each saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Last week, as we looked at the heart of this God, as he said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. You know, as we're all crying last week, I've just been getting the sense of, of he's better than I thought. This Jesus is bigger than I ever dreamed. There's this little section in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian where Lucy, the little girl, she returns back to Narnia and she sees Aslan, the lion who is the Christ figure in the book. And she says to him, Aslan, you're bigger. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. And she asks, and not because you're bigger? And Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Aslan says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What's Aslan saying? He's saying he hasn't changed. He hasn't gotten bigger. He's as big as he's ever was, right? Lucy's the one that's changed. And because she's changed, she's able to see better. She's able to see more closely the way Jesus actually is, okay? And isn't that what's been happening with us, church? The more we see the more we grow in our understanding of Jesus, he looks bigger and bigger than we ever thought and better than we ever dreamed. And so we're gonna be looking at the fourth saying of Jesus on the cross today. And my prayer this week has been that as we look at this fourth saying of Jesus, that we would grow, that we would change and that we would find Jesus to be bigger. Let's look at the fourth saying of Jesus on the cross, Matthew chapter 27 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the sixth hour. Sixth hour is high noon. So darkness is rolling in at noon. Midnight at midday. You know, darkness is not a concept that we really need to be taught. We don't teach our children to be afraid of the dark. They just are. When you're in darkness, real darkness, you inevitably feel disoriented, unprotected, and alone. And so it's no coincidence that all throughout the scriptures, darkness is associated with chaos and sin and God's wrath. Throughout the scriptures, the day of God's judgment is always depicted as a day of darkness. And this is that day. And if we were to stop reading right here, as darkness is rolling in at high noon, if we were to stop reading right here, as darkness is rolling in at this point in the crucifixion as Jesus is hanging on the cross, what would we guess is happening? What would we guess is happening? We would guess, oh man, all those people, 
that nailed Jesus to the cross, all those evil sinners that are, that are spitting upon him and mocking him, they're going to get it now. All those people that nailed Jesus to the cross, they're going to get it. God's day of judgment is coming, and they're going to get it. But from the mouth of Jesus as he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that the day of God's judgment is not falling upon these evil sinners, but that the day of God's judgment is falling upon Jesus. He's the one that's crying. He's the one that's forsaken. He's the one that's being crushed by the wrath of God. We see this happening and it's almost unbelievable. And so what's going on here? What are we seeing? What we're seeing is substitution. What we're seeing in the fourth saying of Jesus on the cross is substitution. Jesus taking the place of sinners. Jesus taking our place. Him taking our place. Because the Bible says when it comes to the cross, we're no innocent bystanders. It's our sins. It's our sins that's nailing Jesus to the cross that hung him there, that killed him. Jesus is taking our place, the place of his people and receiving in himself what we deserve. And so what we're seeing is substitution. Jesus is taking our place, but what was the cost of this substitution? What was the price that Jesus had to pay in order to be our substitute, in order to save us? We see the cost, we see the price that Jesus is paying in the cry of Jesus. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's forsaking is the price. God's forsaking and nothing less is the price that Jesus has to pay because that's what we deserve. We deserve to be forsaken by God. You know, many times when we think about the cross, as precious as it is to us, right? As precious as it is to us, I think many times we miss out on the true weight of the cross, the true price and the true payment that's being made on the cross because we have a tendency to only focus on the physical aspects of the cross, the physical pain, the physical death of the cross, and so we miss out on what's really happening, the true payment that's being paid by Jesus. But there was something else, an infinitely greater pain than the physical pain. And it was paid for by Jesus on the cross. And it was the point that Matt made to us last week. But I think it's such a critical point that we have to understand. If we're going to know what's going on in this fourth saying of Jesus that I just want to share it again. I want to first describe some of the physical pains that Jesus went through. And then describe the true pain. And as I describe it to you one by one, I want you to remember that Jesus is taking our place. He's being our substitute. And so with each thing that's happening to Jesus, I want you to remember those things should have been happening to us. Everything that Jesus is going through, we should have been the ones going through those things. First thing, as I share these things to you, I want you to know that I share these things not just to shock you, not just to be graphic, but to show you the price that was actually paid for you. You know, the value of something is determined by how much you're willing to pay for it. The value of something is determined by how much you're willing to pay for it. I want, I want to show you how much Jesus values you. I want to show you how much he treasures you and cherishes you. Let's think about the state that Jesus was already in before the cross. 
the Bible says that he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was distraught to the point of death and that he started sweating drops of blood, that he sweat drops of blood. It's an actual medical condition, extremely rare medical condition called hematidrosis, where capillary blood vessels that feed into your sweat glands, they rupture, they burst because of an extreme physical or emotional trauma. Jesus' skin would be highly sensitive to touch after this. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed with a kiss. I wonder what this kiss felt like on Jesus' skin. He was taken captive and he was scourged. He was whipped by the cat of nine tails, as Matt told us last week. It's a whip with many strands, with each strand tied to it a metal ball, metal hooks, and bone fragments. The metal ball would literally tenderize the back like meat so that the metal hooks could sink in as deeply as possible. And once the hooks had sunk in, the Roman soldier would take both of his hands and he would rip down across Jesus' back and across the back of Jesus' legs over and over and over again. The prophet Isaiah would tell us that Jesus was marred beyond human likeness. And then he would be mocked. A crown of thorns pressed inches into his head. A robe put on his back. The robe would act like a gauze on his back, blood seeping in and drying until it was affixed to his back, only to be ripped off so that he could carry a cross up a hill where he would be executed. Wood was rare in Israel, so he was handed an old recycled cross, stained with the blood of countless criminals. It was an old rugged cross, splinters now digging into his freshly bleeding back. He was pushed to the very edge of human endurance. He collapsed. He fell down. He couldn't carry the cross anymore. Simon of Cyrene had to help him. And finally, at the top of this hill at Calvary, metal spikes five to seven inches long was used to nail him, hands and feet, to the cross. Rusty iron breaking through the tenderest of nerves. And this cross was dropped into a hole so that he would be at eye level with people, so that their spit could reach his face, so that their mocking could not be ignored. And as excruciatingly painful as everything has been so far, the cross delivered death by asphyxiation, by suffocating you because the only way you could get your breath was to push yourself up through the spikes in your feet. It puts the seven sayings of Jesus in a new light when we realize that he had to push up on himself in this way to get any breath to be able to say anything. Horrific, unimaginable pains, right? But if our understanding of the cross stops here, if our understanding of the pains of the cross stops right here, it stops infinitely short of what was actually paid for us. You see, as horrific as everything has been so far, do you know how the Bible describes his reaction to everything so far? Do you know how the Bible describes Jesus' reaction to all the physical pains that took place so far? Isaiah says, like a sheep being led to the slaughter, that he was silent he was silent, that there was a resolute quietness about him 
as he was being whipped. That there was a composure and a fortitude about him as he was being nailed to the cross. But then something happens that would break that silence, that would break that quietness. Something would happen that would cause Jesus to cry out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This word, loud voice in the Greek, is the only time it's used is right here in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that's, that's translated as, as scream. It's, it really means scream. It's as though the English translators couldn't quite get themselves to translate it as scream, though. The thought of Jesus screaming in anguish being too much to bear. But Jesus did scream. He did scream. R.C. Sproul calls this the scream of the damned. That what's happening here is the crucifixion within the crucifixion. And so what's happening? All the physical pains didn't cause Jesus to scream. He was quiet through it all. What's happening now that's causing Jesus to scream? Jesus is becoming our substitute. And he's becoming sin for us. And the result of Jesus becoming our sin on our behalf? Well, he was forsaken by God. And this spiritual death of being forsaken by God is infinitely more painful than any physical death and it causes Jesus to scream out, the scream of the damned. And you know this truth already, that there's nothing more devastating than losing a lifetime love. That there's nothing more devastating than losing a lifetime love. Some of you in here have gone through it. And you would welcome, you would embrace any amount of physical pain if it would mean that you could get that love back. There are once married people in here, you've lost your husband, you've lost your wife. There are parents in here, you've lost your son, you've lost your daughter, you've lost your baby. There, there are those of you in here, you've lost your mom, you've lost your dad, and the loss is devastating. There's a soul wrenching that takes place. Why? Because your souls were bound up with one another. If I were to lose my wife, Angela, I know that there's not going to be any physical pain. I know that. But I would welcome any physical pain. I would endure any amount of physical pain if it would mean that I didn't have to lose her. And the closer the relationship, the greater the pain, right? The closer the relationship, the greater the pain. If I were to lose Angela 30 years from now, the pain wouldn't be any less because I got to enjoy her and know her for that length of time. It's exactly the knowing her and enjoying her that's going to cause my pain to be that much greater. We hear stories of old, faithful, married couples all the time. It's been married for 50, 60 years. When one of them passes away, the other one soon follows. Why? because their souls were bound up with one another. But Jesus' relationship with the Father, here is no just 50, 60 year relationship. Here is a relationship of intimacy and a knowing and a loving from all eternity, a bounding up to the extent that we could never know. Here was a son who utterly lived for his father. Here was a father who utterly delighted in his son. But in this moment, in human history, 
because of a plan that they had made long ago, Jesus became sin. He went to the cross. And the Father, instead of forsaking us who deserved it, he forsook his son and poured out his wrath on him instead. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so let's not miss out on the true worth of the payment that was being made on the cross when Jesus took our place. Let's not miss out on the crucifixion within the crucifixion. There was something inestimably precious paid for you. God loves you. He loves you. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe it's never moved you. But look at this Jesus. Look at this cross. Look at the pain. Not just the physical pain, not just the physical death, but the spiritual death. As we hear Jesus scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We ought to hear him scream to us, this much, oh, this much is how much I love you. And his love for us is no sentimental kind of love. His love for us is a ferocious love. It's the kind of love that says, I will take your place no matter what hell, no matter what wrath I will face kind of love. It's that kind of love. God loves you with the ferocious love. So in the scream of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see substitution. We see Jesus taking our place and experiencing the true heart of hell and being forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. We see that substitution is Jesus taking our place. But I want us to see something else. Substitution is not simply Jesus taking our place, but it's us taking his place. Substitution isn't simply just Jesus taking our place and becoming sin, for us, substitution is also us taking his place and becoming righteousness. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The other thing that we need to see in the scream of Jesus is the perfect obedience of Jesus. It's the perfect righteousness that Jesus is accomplishing for us. It's so important for us to see Jesus' obedience in this scream because on the surface, it doesn't look like obedience, does it? It's so important for us to see Jesus' obedience in it because on the surface, as he's screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it look like? It looks like Jesus has finally reached his breaking point. Right? It seems like he's questioning God. It seems like his unwavering faith is finally breaking. It seems like he's lost his grip on God. It seems like he's lost his grip on God. But is that what's happening? No. 
In fact, the very opposite is happening. He's not losing his grip on God. He's double gripping onto God as Jesus screams out, my God, my God. Charles Spurgeon calls this the double grip of his unhesitating faith. The double grip of his unhesitating faith as he cries out, my God, my God. What do we first see in this, my God, my God? We see, first of all, that Jesus isn't crying out against God. He's crying out to God. He's not crying out against God. He's crying out to God. The the godly in their anguish do not cry out against God. They cry out to God. What else do we see? We see him crying out twice. Jesus is making a double effort to draw near to God. So Jesus isn't breaking here. He's obeying here. And notice in the word my, not just God, God, but my God, my God. It's a language of intimacy. It's a language biblically of covenant. When God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he said to them, and you shall be my people and I shall be your God. If you overheard me talking and you heard me say, my Angela or my Evie, you may not know who they are, but you would conclude that I must be talking about my wife or my kids. Why? Because you don't use the word my without meaning it for intimacy. And so Jesus isn't losing his grip on God. He's double gripping onto God. He hasn't lost his faith and is now questioning everything either. Well, how do we know that? Well, it sure seems like he's questioning everything. How do we know that? We know that because my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Comes directly from Psalm 22, verse 1. We know Jesus isn't just questioning everything because he's quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture. We have to realize that in those days, they didn't have the Bible like we have today where it's broken up neatly into chapters and verses. And the way that you would refer to a chapter, the way that you would refer to a section of the scriptures is by quoting the first words of it. And so by quoting the first words of Psalm 22, what Jesus is saying is Psalm 22 is what I'm all about. Psalm 22 is what I'm here to accomplish. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is saying, Psalm 22 is what I'm doing right now. And now, what's amazing about this, first of all, is that Jesus goes to God's word. In the time of his sharpest grief and the greatest pain, he goes to God's word. When we're struggling, when we're in pain, the last thing we want to do is go to God's word. The last thing we want to do is go read the Bible but Jesus goes to the scriptures. We're seeing obedience here, aren't we? But let's look deeper into Psalm 22 to see the extent to which Jesus was obeyed. This is the psalm that Jesus has in mind as he's on the cross. And saying the fourth saying on the cross, stay with me, it's a little bit of a longer passage. Psalm 22, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is, right? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. 
Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22, written thousands of years before Jesus by David, perfectly describing what Jesus is going through, right? But it seems so dark. There seems to be no hope. Look at the next verse, verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. So has Jesus lost faith? No. He's trusting in the resurrection that God will not leave him dead, but that he will rescue him and deliver him. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, will I fulfill my vows? Jesus is saying, all that we plan to do to save these people, all that I promise to do for their salvation, I will fulfill my vows. I will stay the course. So that, verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Then all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. By quoting the first words of Psalm 22, Jesus isn't losing his faith. He's declaring his faith. By quoting the first words of Psalm 22, Jesus is saying, I'm doing what I'm doing so that all the ends of the earth, so that all the families of all the nations might believe and be saved. We're seeing obedience here. Not just obedience in life but obedience and death. We're so used to the thought that if we obey God, we will be blessed. We're so used to the thought that if we obey God, we will be blessed. After all, that's what we saw in the garden, right? God told Adam, Adam, if you obey me about the tree, you will live. God told Adam, if you obey me about the tree, you will live. But what did God tell Jesus? Not if you obey me about the tree, you will live, but if you obey me about the tree, you will die you'll be crushed, you'll become the filth of sin, you will be forsaken. For Adam, obedience meant life, but he disobeyed, just like we disobey. For Jesus, obedience meant death, but he still obeyed. Having lived a life of perfect and absolute obedience with no mark of sin on his life, instead of being blessed with heaven, he was cursed with hell. Though being cast into the heart of hell, 
What was Jesus' response? His response was, my God, my God. His response was, though you slay me, I will bless you. Though you're crushing me, you're still my God. Though you're forsaking me, I will still be faithful. I will continue to kiss the hand that has thus afflicted me. We're seeing a level of obedience that is unimaginable. Who could obey more than this? Not just obeying, obeying through life, not just obeying so that you could be blessed, but obeying even with a curse. And so remember that substitution isn't simply Jesus taking our place, but that we take his place. This is the place that we're taking. We're taking a place of absolute and utter obedience. We're taking the place of absolute, utter trust and faith. Because of the substitution of Jesus, when God looks at us, he looks at us just as if we had obeyed in the way that Jesus obeyed. That's substitution. When bad things happen and we run from God's word, right? You guys do that? Bad things happen. We run from God's word. God treats us as if we ran to God's word. Isn't that an unbelievable thought? We're running from God's word, but if you're in Christ, God is treating you as if you ran to God's word. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. When you're experiencing pain, when you're experiencing suffering, and you cry out against God, have you cried out against God? God, why are you doing this to me? In that moment, if you're in Christ, God treats you as if you cried out to God, not against God. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. When you're experiencing pain in this world, horrific pain, physical, spiritual, or emotional, and your faith begins to crack, and you begin to have doubts, in that moment, God treats you as if you're crying out to him, though you slay me, I will bless you. Though you crush me, I will still be faithful to you. I will continue to kiss the hand that has thus afflicted me. God treats you as if you're saying that. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Because Jesus took your place, it means that God is not angry with you. Some of you in here, you sin, you, you commit that habitual sin again, and you think God is angry with you, that he's just going to punish you, that he's standing in the heavenlies with his arms crossed, just shaking his head in disappointment. But if you're in Christ, it's not true. He took your place. He received in himself all the wrath that we deserved, including all the disappointment of, of God that we deserved. Not only that, because you took Jesus' place, it means that God utterly delights in you. Some of you Christians, you need to hear that. Christian, God utterly delights in you. He's not just not angry with you. He delights in you. Some of you live as if God is just putting up with you. You think, yeah, he may have forgiven me, but I'm just hanging on by a thread. But it's not true. The Bible says he sings over you with joy, and he sings over you. I hold my daughter Evie and sing the Frozen soundtrack over her. <laughs> God sings over you. He delights in you. He's not just removing sins from you. He's adding to you perfect and absolute obedience accomplished by Jesus. And when this life is over, you won't be met by a God that says, okay, fine, I'll let you in. 
but a God that says, you're here. You're finally here. You finally did it. You made it. My good and faithful son, my good and faithful daughter, enter into your daddy's house. That's the God you'll be met with. Because on the cross, think about this. Because on the cross, Jesus was treated just as if he had sinned in all the ways that we sin. Now, God treats us just as if we had obeyed in all the ways that Jesus obeyed. What a glorious exchange. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe this? Do you believe in him? If you do, everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of what you will never have to face. If you believe everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of what you will never have to face because he was forsaken by God for us, you will never be forsaken. All of heaven is yours. All righteousness, yours. All of God, yours. You can call him my God. But sadly, there's another side to it, right? If you don't believe, if you don't believe, if you don't believe everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of what will happen to you one day. It's a picture of what will happen to you one day if you forsake and reject Jesus for the rest of your life. And maybe you're thinking, but if God is so loving, how could he send anyone to hell? God is so loving, how could he send anyone to hell? You know, and this is a question that unbelievers just don't have. This is a question that even as believers we have. God, if you're so loving, how could, how could you send anyone to hell? This person is so nice, this person is so kind, how could you send that person to hell? We have this thought and we have this hope that perhaps God would be so loving that even if somebody rejects Jesus for the rest of their lives, that God would still forgive them. And this thought and this hope, what does it keep us from? It keeps us from sharing the gospel in the way that we ought. It keeps us from sharing the gospel with a fervency and an urgency, right? How can a loving God send people to hell? Let me ask you another question. How could a just God forgive people who have rejected such a beautiful Jesus? Think about everything that he did. How could a just God do that? Let me tell you as lovingly as I can, your sins are real. God's wrath is real. And hell is real. And think about this. If God did not spare his own son, Right? Think about it. If God did not spare his own son as he's bearing our sins, what hope is there that he's going to spare anyone that's going to reject this precious Jesus? If God would pour out his wrath on his son, surely he will pour out his wrath on you if you reject this Jesus for the rest of your life. You see, God is so holy He's so holy that he demands payment for sin. Sin has to be dealt with. But because he's also so loving, he's provided us a substitute. 
He's provided us Jesus that will take our place, become our sin, so that we might become righteousness. He's provided you a substitute. But if you reject this Jesus, what else would be left over but the wrath of God? Right? But here's the good news. As long as there's life in our breath, God is offering you this Jesus. He's offering you this hope. Not a counterfeit, false hope of, oh, maybe God won't send anyone to hell, but a true hope, a sure hope, a right hope that right now as you sit, if you believe in Jesus, that he took your place, that he became sin for you, that he was forsaken for you, you'll get to take his place. And if you take his place, you won't ever have to wonder, am I saved? Am I forgiven? You won't ever have to wonder, will God accept me? Because though your sins are real, though God's wrath is real, though hell is real, so is the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus for the salvation of all who would trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. He's better than we thought. He's bigger than we've ever dreamed. Thank you for the substitution that took place. My sins to him, his righteousness to me. What a glorious exchange, what a glorious gospel. Lord, if there's anybody that's hearing this right now that have not trusted yet into this Jesus, will you speak powerfully into their hearts right now by your Holy Spirit? Will you cause the hard heart to grow soft? Will you replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh? And for the very first time, will you help them realize and see this Jesus that loves with a ferocious love? In this moment as they sit, will you save? And Lord, for those of us who have trusted into this Jesus long ago, but maybe perhaps not realized yet how great he actually is, maybe not yet realized the great price that was truly paid on the cross for us, Lord, will you reveal it even more? Will you continue to do the work of growing us and changing us so that we would see Jesus to be bigger? In Jesus' name we pray.